Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, we're talking roots tech. Hi, it's Fisher, and you'll hear my visit with keynote speaker David Hume Kennerly, one of the renowned historical photographers of our generation. He'll share some historical moments he's been a part of and also give some advice on how to make our family history photos even more special. Plus, I'll be talking to DNA specialist Paul Woodbury from Legacy Tree Genealogists about using those more distant DNA matches to help break through some of your tough brick walls. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to another spine-tingling episode of Extreme Genes, America's family history show and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Great to have you. And I'll tell you what, what a time we had in Salt Lake City, Utah this past week with Roots Tech at the Salt Palace Convention Center. You know, there was there was nothing held back because of coronavirus. Everybody was having a great time, and there were so many things going on. And so today's show is going to have a Roots Tech slant to it. My first guest will be David Hume Kennerly. He was one of the keynote speakers at the conference. He is, of course, the renowned historic photographer of the last few 55 years or so. I mean, he has been there for all the historic events that have taken place uh, with presidents and assassinations and wars. And he talks about how to tell a story using photographs. And we even delve a little bit into family history photography and some tips that we get from him could be useful to you. So that's coming up here in about 15 minutes. Later in the show, you'll hear my interview with Paul Woodbury that we did at the Legacy Tree Genealogy Desk at Roots Tech. Uh, Paul talks about Going back to some of those earlier matches and how you might be able to use those to uncover some of your earlier lines. And what about those matches that might be considered identical by state? Do we worry about them? Do we not? Paul's got some insight on that, too. But right now, it's time to head out to Boston and talk to my good friend, David Allen Lambert, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. He was dressed like a pilgrim for half the conference. You know, people couldn't figure out who you were. Just who were you anyway? I didn't know, but who was I portraying? I was portraying John Billington, Ah. the pilgrim who actually was executed for killing a man 10 years after arriving. So if you're going to pick somebody, you might as well have a black sheep. You know, everyone wants to be William Bradford and John Alden. Yeah. So this was America's first accused killer. That's right. Um, I do want to say that you know, we enjoyed one Roots Tech this year, but as Steve Rockwood announced, there's another one. Roots Tech London will be coming back November 5th through 7th in London, England. That's going to be awesome. Well, let's get on with our family histoire news because we've got a lot of it today. Well, you know, people always assume that historical places have been well-searched. Well, so did Bonnie Zampino when she was exploring the woods near Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. Of course, the raid by John Brown on Harper's Ferry in 1859, the precursor to the Civil War, is well known to most students of American history. And she found something. She found a single white marker with the initials J-D-A. Now, what's intriguing about this, she thought it was one person. It turns out she may have located a former Civil War cemetery that had been long forgotten. Back in about 1959, there was knowledge of a cemetery that may have had about 60 individuals buried in it. And I think she may have found it. So good luck sleuthing Bonnie. 
Now, many of you may recall our super centenarian, Jeanne Calmet, who died back in the 1990s at the ripe old age of over 122 years, right. born in 1875. <laughs> yeah, there's a little problem with that. Turns out that Jeanne may have been Yvonne, Jeanne's daughter. Gerontologists and photography experts have looked over the information. They've talked to people that knew her, and people are now thinking, that her daughter Yvonne that died back in the 1930s was actually Yvonne's mother, Jeanne, that died and that Yvonne became her mother to prevent paying inheritance tax. Wow. Oh, that's an amazing story. And where was that? That was in the New Yorker. All right. And hopefully at some point they'll be able to actually uh, use some DNA from someplace to prove that. But that's uh, that's amazing. Well, they mentioned that there is a blood sample that gerontologists took that is still around, so hopefully that will confirm it. Well, happy 25th birthday to Angie Crognell. Well, actually, she was born on a leap year. She's actually 100 years old. Oh, wow. But because <laughs> she was born on a leap year, she's really 25 years old. That's pretty promising, isn't it, for a long life? Congratulations to her. Where does she live? Uh, New Jersey, and she says she doesn't feel any older than 75. <laughs> you know, now that we've talked about somebody who was 122, not really. Now we talked about somebody who's 25, but really 100. How about age 82? That's where Daniel Levitin tells you that you are at your happiest. Oh, wow. 82? At 82, yeah, not at retirement. The Changing Mind, a neuroscientist guide to aging well, is suggesting that people reach their happiest at the age of 82 that has been determined across 72 countries. Wow. How many people actually make it to 82 to know that they're going to be that happy? That's crazy. I will tell you when I reach it, and I'll be giving you a call on the phone. <laughs> there you go. We've covered a lot on the Golden State Killer in the previous year now, and it is now determined that Joseph D'Angelo will plead guilty to avoid the death penalty. Of course, D'Angelo was accused of killing 13 people and burglarizing dozens of homes back in the 1970s and 1980s. Wow. And of course, it was C.C. Moore that led the charge. And this was the first cold case solved using the DNA technique that has really changed our whole space. It has, and hats off to CC and all others that are out there finding the killers of those that have been cold cases for years. My blogger spotlight would be a hard one to determine, but this one is a new kid on the block, and it is FamilyScribe.com, and that's Scribe with a Y. And what Family Scribe is going to be launching is a platform so you can blog about your family. You don't want to have to learn code or invest in getting the URL. Family Scribe will do that all for you. You can find out more at FamilyScribe.com and an exciting new kid on the RootsTech floor at the vendor hall. That sounds really intriguing. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Well, that's about all I have for this week. Now that my Mayflower has pulled in and I've parked <laughs> and the three-hour time difference isn't affecting me, I'll dig out some more family history news for next week. All right, David, thank you so much. We will talk to you again at the back end of the show. We're going to talk a little more about Roots Tech, some of the highlights for both of us, and, of course, ask us anything as well. All right. 
We just enjoyed Roots Tech last week in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I had the opportunity to sit down with one of the keynote speakers, David Hume Kennerly, who is one of the renowned historic photographers of our day. He goes back over 50 years. He was the official White House photographer for Gerald Ford. He covered the Vietnam War. He covered assassinations. He's the man behind many photographs that you will recognize if you ever go online and look him up. And he talks to me about how to capture a story through photography and even through family history photography. It's been a a joy to watch your speech today, and I I was thinking back in my mind to Matthew Brady because you were about 100 years after him as you came of age as a photographer, and his photography of the Civil War really changed the way the country viewed that war. And 100 years later, it really hasn't changed that much, has it? Well, Matthew Brady, in the same breath, you have to mention Alexander Gardner, who was his partner in business. And a lot of the pictures Alexander Gardner took, everybody thinks Matthew Brady took. He also did Lincoln portraits. But the two of them really shed a light on the Civil War, the participants. I think some of the portraits that they took at the time, and and I think Matthew Brady may have the record for the most presidential portraits. I'm not entirely sure, but he photographed. I don't know if he did John Adams. I think he did. Not sure when John Adams was a congressman because photography started in 1838 and right off the bat among the first people they started photography were politicians and only five presidents were not photographed. But Matthew Brady did so many of the earlier ones, uh, from Grant to Lincoln and on and on and on. But I'm proud to be mentioned in the same sentence with Matthew Brady. You know, as you think about the history of photography, when you were a young photographer coming up and you showed in your speech here today that it started with a picture of a cat, at what point did you realize that the stories you were documenting could actually affect public perception and actually potentially change public opinion and bring about political change? Well, that's a really good question, but I'm not totally sure that it does. I would like to say that it does, and I've seen some instances where I think it affected it. But I don't think that was ever my mission in life. I think it was more to be in situations and photograph things that people don't want to see but have to see, Uh, whether it's a war well, there's 9-11, Jonestown, you saw some of those photos. Those are really hard to look at, but by the same token, you need to know what goes on. And the photos are really the vehicle that takes it right into your heart and soul. Absolutely. And in family history, of course, we, we deal with that all the time. We can look back. It's really a way to time travel and capture maybe the personalities of people that we never had the opportunity to meet. I mean, what a privilege for you it's been to be in the presence of all these great leaders throughout your life. Right. And I never took it for granted. Every day I would pull into the White House and like I'd come driving up in my VW, the gates would open. That was back when they weren't, you know, like wildly uh, security conscious. They were, but they'd see me coming. They knew it was me. I'd pull in and I thought, my gosh, I just came into the White House. How old were like you the first day, time? Every day I'd feel like that. I was, um, when I became the chief White House driver, I was 27. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then... Actually, I was out of the White House before I was 30 years old. The end of my career as I knew it. <laughs> but I had a, like a wild decade in my, my 20s. I mean, I, everything from winning the Pulitzer to 
being the president's photographer. I mean, I had an incredible early run at it, but and I've kept going. I haven't stopped. I'm going to be 73 in March and have no intention of stopping. As I think back about what it must be like to be a kid in your 20s to go off and be the photographer for the president, did you have to go through all kinds of clearance screenings and all that? Because, as you said, one of your demands from President Ford was if you're going to do this job, you're going to have access to everything. Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, yeah, of course, like I had a very high clearance because I was in all the meetings. I was in National Security Council meetings, the president's daily briefing by the CIA, and I would get calls like from first grade school teachers saying, what have you done? Like the FBI was here <laughs> asking questions. And that's how, yes, they were very rigorous, actually. I had to list all the places I traveled. I, I couldn't even remember some of them. I mean, to date, it would be really hard to fill that form out because I think I've been in like 125 countries on assignments. But anyway, President Ford said to me, your gravestone should read, here lies the worst source in Washington. I never felt compelled to tell people what I knew. I'm an incredibly discreet person, and that I, it's not just me, it's any photographer who's in a privileged position or just in a normal situation. We, we're in it for the photos, not to tell a reporter or somebody what we know. I saw a picture in there that just made me smile because it was George W. Bush. I had the privilege of getting to meet him at one time, signing your head. Now, how did that come about? George W. Bush is a bit of a character and a uh, kind of a prankster. And what I will say is he did not, I don't think, I don't remember, but I don't think he actually signed my head. <laughs> but he let on that he was going to do it. But he's, a, he's somebody I know very well and appreciate. And his dad was actually a better friend. But I like George. He's somebody you can sit down and have a beer with and a really decent guy. So I'm sure you must do personal pictures even within your family. You're probably demanded to do that at every reunion. What kind of tips would you give to family members if they were just taking ordinary pictures, documenting their own family history? Well, I, I think one of the key points is trying to do candid pictures of your kids in the act of being themselves, not just looking at the camera and smiling. And I'm guilty of this. Like, okay, let's get the perfunctory picture, you know. Sure. But if you can open it up a little bit and you look at them as, like, interesting subjects that you're documenting and there they are making their science project or playing with a dog or whatever it is that you somehow get to a point where they don't notice you're around. Because most kids won't give you a break on pictures. You know? They don't want the, oh, another picture, i got to stop. And <laughs> think of yourself as a documentarian. Like You're recording some history. It's family history. And I think it's really important important. So you've seen MyHeritage's new colorization feature on their website. Did you see some of the images that they colorized? I did see those. It's sort of like Ted Turner's concept comes to life in still pictures, not just movies. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You have no idea what the colors really were, of course. Right. But then I think it does make them livelier, really. Of course, most of my career, early career was shooting black and white pictures. And I really never had any interest in having those colorized per se, because then you have a historical element there about, like, was she wearing a red dress or a blue dress? But I liked it. I thought, for one thing, I was amazed how good the quality was, really. I'll definitely try it out. <laughs> I will. Would Maybe you? I'll do the Ali Frazier knockdown picture and put it through the machine and see how it comes out. Well, and you have some color pictures to compare them to anyway, right? From that the, yes, there's a guy who has done some historical colorization, 
And, and that was one picture I really would like to see in color was Allie Frazier because I did shoot it in black and white. But there were, you know, the Sports Illustrated people were there. It would be very easy to find out exactly what the colors were because there were color pictures of the event. You don't get those in 1880, however. There is a difference between how people perceive a black and white and even a tinted photo from the old days to a color one. Do you, when you're doing a photograph, take into account what kind of mood you're trying to transmit? All I'm trying to do is get a genuine read of and, and memorialize something that was going on, like the tension in the room. I think that picture of Election Night 2000 was a perfect example of that. I mean, you could see the tension just exploding out of the photo. It was a big moment. The governor's mansion with uh, Governor Bush thought he was the president-elect, and then he wasn't. <laughs> so right. you can't beat that for history. No, and he wasn't for quite a long time after that, a month or yeah, two. Yeah, went for a while, and, of course, everybody in the room I knew well, like Dick Cheney, and, uh, and I was over there with Cheney that night. And photographers who'd been traveling with Bush got kicked out at the time in Newsweek photographers, but I, nobody kicked me out because I didn't have my own minder with me. And plus, they all knew me, so there was no, it wasn't out of, unusual that I was there. It wasn't like a stranger, but what a night. I lived for that stuff. That was one of the biggest nights of my life professionally because it was one of the biggest nights in history. Obviously, trust with your subjects after all this period of time has been really important in your career. Well, you saw pictures I had with, I was with Rumsfeld in his office as the strike against Afghanistan was commencing. And that meant cruise missiles were on the way and all of that. Of course, they knew when they landed, <laughs> the, the deal was up at that point. Part of my success has been that I have been a trusted person in the room. I've never been the source of a leak. I've never really been the source of any kind of a story. Every reporter I've worked with, they respect that. I mean, they know. I'm in there because I can be there and the pictures are not talking. That's why you don't ever see video of that stuff, because you could read their lips. It's interesting because your career, I mean, you've created a brand for yourself, and yet you have never been the story. If I'm the story, I did the wrong thing somehow. Right. I don't want to be the story. I mean, I don't mind telling stories later, but I've never talked about classified information or embarrassing things. That uh, I just, I'm not a gossipy person, really. So you just kind of stay neutral politically and intellectually, and just hard. capture the moment. It's hard to stay neutral these days, however, because uh, I feel that the First Amendment is under direct attack from the President of the United States, and I take it personally. I take that really personally. I've had so many friends and colleagues who've died in action telling the story, and I, and I think when that's diminished or, or demeaned, uh, you're taking me on then, and I don't like it. He's David Hume Kennerly, the noted photographer. Thanks so much for your time, sir. Thank you. And I think, by the way, when he was talking about photographing presidents and he referenced John Adams, he was actually talking about John Quincy Adams. Here's my visit with DNA specialist Paul Woodbury from Legacy Tree Genealogists. We're going to talk about some of these matches that come up in our DNA research, Paul, that they reach a certain point, they're really not of a lot of use. Yeah, more specifically also looking at some of these more distant matches, it's kind of a mixed bag. Some of them are going to be useful, some of them are going to be so far removed from you that it's going to take many, many years to try and figure out how they're related, and some of them aren't actually true matches at all. All right, so, so let's talk about that for a minute. First 
first of all, what is the average number of matches most people have? I have heard recently from many of the companies that it's not uncommon to have 50,000 matches that you're dealing with with autosomal DNA. Wow. So even if it were half that, I mean, it's a, a number that's really unattainable in terms of trying to figure out where they all fit in. And why would you want to anyway? Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. right? And, and that is one of the, the things that is commonly comes as a question for me. People say, how do I make sense of all of this data? How do I even begin working through some of these 50,000 matches? And I say, don't try because right. then you've got the rest of your life cut out for you. Um, you know, you need to focus your research questions and use DNA as a tool to better address your research questions rather than trying to figure out how you're related to every single person in your match list. So do you have a cutoff point that you typically recommend? You say, okay, we're, we're not really going to look at matches beyond fourth cousins, fifth cousins, sixth cousins. I'm sure it depends on each individual case and what you're trying to achieve, but generically speaking, What's a good cutoff point for somebody trying to sort and say, yeah, I want to sort them all through this much as much as I can? You know, it will depend on the case, um, just because of the nature of different populations. And rather than a cutoff point in terms of relationship, I will often start with a threshold in terms of centimorgans, or the amount of DNA that they're sharing with me. Because trying to apply a threshold of a fifth cousin versus a sixth cousin, well, first I have to figure out who, who all those fifth and sixth cousins are, right? But if I can say, okay, I'm going to focus first on everybody over 50 centimorgans, right. then that gives me a starting point and I can work through that list. And the, the approach that I take is to start with what's closest to you. That is the advice that I got from my mother when I was feeling overwhelmed when I was in high school and I was thinking, where do I start? What do I do? I've got so much homework. And she said, start with what's closest to you. And I think that that helps you to make sense of those closer matches and eventually move down through your list. And as you move through your list, as you work from those really close matches, more distant, you'll begin to see patterns of how people are related to each other, how they're fitting into groups, and you can begin to see some of these patterns emerge. Well, and these closer ones, of course, are going to match to people further back. Mm -hmm. It's going to really help you narrow. So that really, it's got to be the way you start is, is the yeah. closest ones. Exactly. And what that does is it sets us up with a foundation for success so that when we do begin digging into those more distant matches, those that are sharing less than 20 centimorgans, 15 centimorgans, 10 centimorgans, there's going to be some that are helpful for your research. And the way that you can determine which of those is going to be helpful is by first putting in that effort to organize those closer matches first so you can begin putting them into the correct groups and identify them based on their relationships to your closer relatives. So late last year, I had a connection that broke open the lines of some third great grandparents over in England because a woman spit in a tube in Australia and she matched me and my brother and my half-sister and three second cousins and since then has matched to my first cousin as well and we figured out that there were some other matches from further back that said oh it's up this line and then one more generation oh it's up this line mm -hmm. it looks like she must be a descendant of our Wicks ancestors mm -hmm. 
and as a result of those we were able to place it and she had on her tree somebody named Wicks. When we researched that woman we learned that she was a previously unknown daughter of my couple ancestors and was born 35 miles away from where I normally knew them to be. Oh wow. So we found the maiden name of the mother, we found their marriage record, we found their christening and one line goes back now to 1575 all because a woman in Australia spit in a tube. But because we found that, I also wound up looking now specifically for other people who descended from that same couple that she did mm -hmm. and found like four others and they matched four of us or three of us or mm -hmm. five of us. So we got this constant confirmation coming that, yeah, this is the same couple, this is correct. And it found me. I didn't really have to go looking for it so much other than where does she fit in? Why is she matching all these people? And I think that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Yeah, exactly. That you start with the known relationships and once you begin to see some of these people coming through that say, oh, they're matching DNA with all of these known relatives from this particular line. Right. They have to be through that line. Let's figure out and build their family tree and see how we intersect with each other, maybe a little bit further beyond my brick wall. And isn't that interesting to know, too, that you can have that small a number of shared centimorgans and still have it make a huge difference in your research? Because I've heard, now this is a number that I've heard, Paul, mm -hmm. on, on identical by state. Some people have said 20 or 25 percent of your matches and you take a big gasp and go oh my goodness well that could mean a huge number of my matches aren't really matches by being related to me but just by coincidence ultimately right but really that number would have far more to do with the matches that are a really tiny amount yes absolutely so once you're getting into the weeds of those more distant matches you'll be beginning to see some of those more identical by state matches and we say 20% of my matches are identical by the state or you know 50% of my matches are identical by state but if you consider that each person has 50,000 matches right. that means that the closer matches are always are almost always related because of a recent common ancestor and as you get further into those weeds that's where you're going to see some of these these matches and that's where the majority of your matches as a total are going to be right i may have 5000 thousand fourth cousins or I may have 500 fourth cousins and the rest are going to be these more distant relatives so it's not terribly concerning that many of them are not going to be related through a recent common ancestor that we can identify but if you focus on those close relatives first then that will bring meaning as you're exploring some of these more distant relatives and the things you want to look for are do they match some of the individuals who've identified. They may only share 10 centimorgans with you or 7 centimorgans with you. But if you look at their shared match lists, whether that it be at Ancestry or at 23andMe, at MyHeritage, Family Tree DNA, it doesn't matter which company, you can see which of those people are shared matches. How much DNA do they share with your shared matches? And though they may only share 7 centimorgans with you, if they're sharing 50 centimorgans, 40, 30, 20 with your known fourth cousin or your known third cousin, then that brings us to the point that they are much more pertinent than mm -hmm. perhaps any other random genetic cousin who happens to have a surname that you are interested in but has no shared matches. No shared. 
So generally you can identify somebody like this, they don't have any matches with you at all, and it's a very small amount. So really, as you go about your work solving some very complicated cases for Legacy Tree, you don't worry too much about it, do you, about identical by state? They're pretty much irrelevant. Yeah, they're far enough down the list that we rarely get to them, if at all. <laughs> and the ones that we're focusing on are those that are the more recent relatives that we're trying to build the foundation. And the ones that we analyze that may share less DNA are going to be those that share at least more DNA with other known relatives. Paul Woodbury from Legacy Tree, great to see you again. Thanks. And hope you have a great Roots Tech. You as well. And coming up next, David Allen Lambert rejoins me to talk about more of the highlights of Roots Tech. And uh, David, we're talking Roots Tech here and some of your highlights. Where do you want to begin? Meeting David Hume Kennerly. And of yep. course, meeting Emmett Smith dressed as a pilgrim. Yes, this was a picture I never thought I'd see. David dressed as a pilgrim posing for a photo with Emmett Smith, who was one of the keynote speakers. He did a great presentation because he has been featured on Who Do You Think You Are and wound up actually going back to Africa to meet people from where his ancestors came from. It was incredible. You know, there was quite a Mayflower theme this year at Roots Tech as well, because there was uh, not only a ship that was on display that people could pose with, and actually a, a replica of the Mayflower Compact that people could sign, but there was also an original Bible from William Bradford that was brought over on the Mayflower that was on display from Brent Ashworth, who got it in an auction, and it was amazing to see the awe on the face of some of Bradford's descendants who came to see the Bible. It was absolutely incredible. And the pilgrim hat that was right next to it. Yeah, and a pilgrim hat. It's the oldest hat that Brent has. We've had him on the show before. He has like a million historic items in his collection. He's absolutely amazing. Uh, And David, also your group, NEHGS, along with Steve Rockwood from Family Search, made a special announcement. That's true. We have been working together to get over 30,000 applications of those born before 1920 who were members of the General Society and the Mayflower descended. But here's the catch. They're going to be digitized online, but they'll be on trees connecting members that descend from William Redford with all the information from their applications searchable on American ancestors with Family Search. That's so fun because if you're looking to join the Society of Mayflower Descendants, this makes things really easy. It does. If you look at an approved application from the Mayflower Society, generally speaking, you're in good shape. We had a lot of announcements from the various companies. I thought um, MyHeritage did a great job taking a well-deserved bow for their new colorization feature on their website so we can turn our digitized black and white photographs into color, and it's free. It is, and as a member, you can have unlimited. And it's great because they've had over a million photos colorized for That's that right. product. It's amazing. One of the other big announcements this week came from Ancestry, where you now can get transcribed all the information, New York City vital records from 1862 to 1949, as well as World War II draft cards, including the young men draft cards, which were previously not available. I found my dad fish. Wow. And I found his occupation in a place I didn't even know he worked. Huh. And, you know, that's all in these draft cards, too, from the early 40s. So a lot of people are going to find a lot of stuff there. 
And the only one that's missing is the state of Maine was misplaced or lost years ago, but the rest of the states are there. And, uh, David, we have a question from Georgia in Bristol, Rhode Island. She says, uh, guys, in light of Ancestry's announcement about the World War II draft registration records being made public, what can you tell me about how many of the Army records from World War II were destroyed in that fire in St. Louis? Well, in 1973... On July the 12th, there was a fire that took out 80% of the U.S. Army personnel records that were kept between November of 1912 and January 1st of 1960. So 80% gone. And then, of course, the Army Air Corps was part of that. And then, of course, the Air Force was developed in 1947 from the Army. And those records from September of 1947 through January 1st, 1964, 75% of those are gone. But there is hope. There are burnt files. So if you make a request, of the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, make sure you put on it, please check for burnt files because they've been recovering them. It's quite interesting. So the records that were destroyed by fire, there are fragments and there are records that got wet. And what they're doing now is they're actually digitizing. They're cleaning up the images and looking for the ink from underneath the burnt paper. They're able to provide you sometimes with fragmented records. In fact, Melanie McComb, who we've had on the show, she was able to get the day rosters for her own grandfather, and those records are singed, but they do survive. Isn't that something? Now, these were on different floors, right? That's why the Navy records, for instance, survived, and the Army records got so decimated, and yet you mentioned that it's like 80%, which means 20% of the records made it through, right? That's true. And of course, that is where we really are not sure because they have not started to digitize the records and make them publicly accessible. I would imagine in the next decade, you'll be seeing places such as Fold3 or Family Search working to get these digitized and up and accessible because our World War II generation is going to be gone or very close to the end because uh, you figure the average age by then would be 105. So this is something that is really valuable to people. And of course, you can get records on the state level. The Adjutant General's Office or the National Guard Office in every state will have an actual copy of the DD-214, which is the honorable discharge for the veteran. Uh, and you can make application to that on the state level. And that will give you a little bit of information. Wow. Um, you, would think the that the, thing- you would think that the federal government would say, if those records are available locally, that they could gather that all together and create at least some kind of national database for all that information. I would hope that that would be the plan for down the road. Um, I know that over the years, uh, the National Personnel Records Center has asked if you have copies of your own records and they were destroyed, please send them to them so they can have them on file. Oh, wow. Uh, so that's that's something. If you have, like, you know, records for your dad or your grandparent and they fall into that time frame and you make a request and it says the records are burnt, guess what? They would really like a copy of them to try to fill in the blanks. And of course, the other thing is once in the Army, for instance, you know the unit, you can contact the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and they have the unit histories, which add all sorts of detail from the time that the unit was called into service to the time they mustered out. Unbelievable. David, thanks so much. Georgia, thanks for the question. And of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can always email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Talk to you next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family.
This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.